What is up, everybody? Wanted to let you know I'm uh, canceling the end of year tour. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not even going to podcast. I'm getting into a new business where I'm going to open up a museum of pants. And my museum of pants is going to be where you go online and you go to a place and you bought pants from there before. And you think, okay, I, I, I've been wearing these pants for two years. I don't even wash them that often. They're, they've been a durable pants, but now they're starting to get the little holes in them right where your nutsack are. Almost like if you had a pointy enough nutsack, the bottom of it could just kind of fit through that hole. Maybe you could show off a little bit of hair, a little bit of ball skin if you were into that kind of thing. But it'd be very difficult to set up your pants in a way where your nuts could drip down through the little hole, but everything else would be contained because you don't want your dick rubbing up against your jeans. I don't know if you've ever pulled that move at one time in your life when you thought, hey, why don't I try out this whole commando thing? And then your dick ends up running up against your pants all day you end up with some uh, some weird chafing issue, and then you find out that without the layer of protection between your asshole and your uh, and your pants, you, there's shit all over the place. That never happened. That didn't happen the one time I went commando. That's fake news. And if you want to prevent these things, you could just be wearing sheath underwear. You use Pro Card or RYM, you get 20% off. Your balls won't drip through any holes, and you won't end up with shit all over your pants. That's not what I was trying to talk about. I was trying to talk about this museum of pants that I was going to be opening up. Uh, it is because I've even tried a couple times now. All I need is a couple pairs of jeans. This is not a complicated endeavor. I need two pairs of jeans that fit. I'm wearing um, basically a size 32 waist. And apparently, I used to be a size 30. Apparently, I'm all of a sudden a 29. All of a sudden, in the 30s, they're going a little bit too long. There's a little too much fold in them. I don't know what's going on here. Did I get shorter or pants getting longer? What is going on? That you can't just, the, your whole life, you're wearing the same exact measurements, and all of a sudden, it's not working for you. So at one point, you know, Long time. I just went with uh, with with Levi. They got too many options. Couple last two times, I tried to go for to a store. They had too many options. I'm sifting through all the options. I finally find what looks like normal pants. I'm not gonna go try on pants. I'm just not doing it. I'm not getting into that that room and taking off my clothes to put on clothes. That's crazy talk. And then there there was a, once I found pants that I thought would work. The line was too big. I just walked right out of the store. I was like, you know what? I'm not doing this. Right? I'm gonna order pants online. But then now twice I've gone online. I've ordered myself some pants from places that I previously bought and then the pants they're totally different you get i've already talked about it you get these european twink models that they're just hugging you then you end up with jeans that you thought were jeans but they're more spandexy it looks like you're out wearing sweatpants i'm not going to become one of these people that just goes out and wears sweatpants i'm not going to do that and then recently levi's they caught me with one of their sales and i was like all right i've been wearing the same levi jeans forever that's fine. I, I, you know, I preferred the one pair of Banana Republics that I had, but they went with this stretchy pants thing for, for, for thin people. That's not going to work. We're going back. And then I ordered from, firstly, what's with the buttons? Who's still wearing jeans with buttons? Is that, did, did some guy keep getting his dick stuck in his jeans and he's like, that's it. I'm done with zippers. I'm never wearing a zipper again. I'm going with button jeans for the rest of my life. I've got four pairs of pants now from Levi's that I'm not going to wear and I'm not going to return. So I, if this is going to be my new exhibit. When I go on tour, start bringing your pants that, you know, if you went gone online and you've bought pants that are just a train wreck, that you can't even understand that there'd be any individual in all of humanity that would wear these and you're too lazy to return them, I'm going to start a museum of pants. It's going to be exhibit of all of the, like, how come they can't make pants like they used to? Three years ago, I was getting perfectly good pants. Did all the kids work in those Chinese factories, age out of work in those factories, and the new ones, they can't train them as well? What is going on? I don't know. If you guys have insights on this, you can be up at robsnewsroom at gmail.com. Also, if you don't want to hear me just yell about nonsense, you can skip to the second half of the episode where we talk to the gavel project once again about uh you know how you can go after the government for uh 
you know, kicking you out of jobs or you should just listen to him. He's got more of the scoop over there. I don't know how I'm allowed to represent his thing. So just go to that half of the episode. Uh, also pick up some tickets, you cheap bastards. I'm, I'm in a bunch of cities. And if you haven't already bought your tickets, you know, go buy your tickets, New York city coming up at uh old man hustle. I got a lineup with uh BK Chris. Also, he's got a show going on at a uh, tiny cupboard. He's headlining. You guys can go check that one out. Uh, New Hampshire, Saturday night's already sold out. Atlanta's coming up. Denver's coming up. Mexico, that's a whole uh, extravaganza. And, uh, you know, go to RobbieTheFire.com slash shows. Get yourself some tickets. Now, here's another thing I've been thinking about. I don't know if uh, I've discussed this on the show, but I feel like uh, holding doors for people, it's it's getting a little too out of control. It's making me anxious because I feel like we, we treat doors like they're difficult to open, that once you're open, you got to hold it for the next guy. It's like the gates to heaven. If the thing closes, then that guy's going to be shut. It's like the train's leaving. If I don't keep this door open, he's going to miss it. It's just it's like, and then what ends up happening, sometimes some guy holds the door for you. Now, you got to sprint because you weren't, you weren't even in the range of the door where a guy should be holding it for you, but he felt the need to hold the door open which it's not that hard to open up doors unless you're old people why are we holding doors for each other but the guy you know so now you got to hustle to the door and then I also end up in this situation where I can't tell all right am I supposed to be waiting on this guy is he close enough here's what I think we need you know in basketball they got the box can't be in the box for more than three seconds got a box we need something like that around the door if you're outside of that line right you're not supposed to hold the door for people. It's just one set rule. It's a nice little circular line. If you're within the circle, the etiquette is to hold the door. If you're outside of the circle, you're not supposed to hold the door. It, it will actually be considered rude if you're holding the door for someone who's outside of the circle because now you're forcing them to hustle to get to the door quicker than they otherwise would have to. On the same note, we're not going to start doing this thing where it's like the elevator grab where you hustle to get your hand into the elevator right before it goes. No hustling to the line to force somebody to hold the door for you. This is it. We're, we're working out a new system. We're just we're creating new rules for society so that things will actually function. There won't be any of this chaos where people aren't sure what the etiquette is. You're standing around like an asshole trying to hold the door for people that are fully capable of opening up their own door and then they're trying to hustle. It, it, it's chaos out there. A simple line system. Maybe three, four, three feet from the door, we draw a semicircle. I'll go around the country with chalk. I'll start initiating the system. I'll start showing up to businesses I don't work at. I'll start drawing the semicircle. People ask me what it's about, and I'll go, I'm just trying to educate the world. If they're outside of this zone, you don't have to hold the door for them. And while you're here, here's some tickets to my pants exhibit. I'm going to be in town later today exhibiting pants that I bought online that I don't understand how anyone could wear. I'd actually like to bring the CEOs to the pants exhibit and then have people try them on to go, who exactly is wearing pants that are this length that have buttons where your dick is and I uh, okay I already t- talked about the uh, pants topic here's another thing I'd like to see in uh, in the world I've got some bad qualities and one of them is when I stop at a restaurant I pick up food I never don't eat the food in the car like I always think I'm gonna get home and like sit down and you know maybe watch or listen to some pot and then I just I scarf it down in the car and it gets all over the place and some sandwiches are not made for the car particularly wraps wraps like bread, they're absorbing a little bit more of the, the moisture. Sometimes they're throwing too much hot sauce in there. Whereas you go from a wrap and you're trying to eat that in the car, unless they got a good tinfoil game and they really sealed the bottom for you, that shit, it's drooping right out. You take one bite and you got hot sauce all over and you can't even go online and get new pants. You start dripping hot sauce on your pants because you're eating in the car, you're in trouble because it's not that easy to replant, replace the pants that you have. Don't think you can just go online, go to a website you've been ordering pants from and just get it in the same dimensions and it's going to show up without buttons where the dick are for, for some reason with pants that are longer than they used to be. You got to be more careful when you're eating in the car 
And I don't clean the car that often. And I'm eating chicken. I'm eating tuna sauce. Like the amount of shit that's fallen between my chair and then and my nose doesn't even work. My car might smell like a gym locker. I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you if my car if my car smelled or not. We need trays for eating while driving. I don't know if you're out there and you're an engineer. I, I, I'll, uh, I'm I'll willing to collaborate with the audience. You want to help me open up my museum of pants? I'll work with you on that. You want to help me uh, invent trays for you know people who are too impatient to get home and they want to eat while driving? But we need a good tray. Um, it should come with a built-in napkin holder because they never send you with enough napkins. You always find out. You get some giant glob like right in between your legs and it's starting to drip to, and, you're, and you're going to a meeting and you're like, shit, this is going to get to my... And then they never pack any napkins. Napkins or the napkins that they packed, they used them already to try and pat down the sandwich because you knew you were going to eat in the car. They never come with enough supplies. So we need like a tray that kind of fits around you. It fits in the car, doesn't get in the way of the steering wheel. It picks up everything that falls to the point that if a cop pulled you over and he's like, are you eating while driving? It'd be like having your Bluetooth on. You're like, yeah, but I got the tray. I'm doing it safely. And then maybe he could dip in, get your leftovers. Uh, all right. Next topic, Waffle House is fucking legit. I mean, I have a I have a thirst for Waffle House now. I went there for the first time. It could just be that, uh, like, I, I, I just do that thing where I have to ruin things because I had it once. Now I feel like I got to go back there. And if I went back there, I probably wouldn't like it as much. But they're, uh, first, the way that they glow is just, it, it looks like you're walking into a painting. When you pull off the highway and you're hungry and that yellow thing is just all glowy out there, but it's not overly bright and it kind of looks mysterious and then you show up and then, I mean you would think waffles are, I mean waffles are just waffles but they, they they put it together quickly they put it together fresh I love by the way there's a there's a real fat fuckery when you can just slap like uh eggs and a sausage on top of your waffle just throw the syrup on there and just dig in you, at that point it almost feels like you're eating a salad because you're fork and knifing it but it's a salad of sugar uh and not expensive Waffle House is a good place to bring your friends and be like, all right, I got this because it's just it's uh, it, it's not it's not expensive and delicious. You know, you Waffle House, you guys should sponsor us. I mean, you're not nearly as reliable and inexpensive as a Kratom, home of the $60 kilo. I mean, you want to talk about packing value uh, available anytime. YoKratom.com, and if I'm going to plug anything, I got to let you guys know those vape pens. Have you guys not stocked up yet on YoDelta? Because if you're a weed person over the age of 21, uh, you're crazy if you haven't picked up on some YoDelta. I absolutely love their hybrid vape pens. They're not like... uh, the gummies will fuck you up. The hybrid vape pen, it's more when you're out and you're a maniac and you don't really want to be out and you got to socialize. Uh, a couple of hits off of that, it gets you to a good spot. It's not like the overly stoned where all of a sudden you're doing the shed cast after your show and uh, you're, you're tired and, and talking nonsense and just keep talking about how you have a boner for Waffle House and why are we sitting around making conversation with the Waffle House. It's like it, it, it almost starts feeling like vagina that's available and you're like, why are we sitting here when that Waffle House is only a two-hour walk and it's still open? We can we could be eating waffles right now. That's got to be a, a late-night activity. Uh, all right. Scam medical office. I want to talk about this. I had an incident. I hate medical offices. Every time I go, they they, they send you these bills out of nowhere. You think you're all settled up? Here was a good scam that I just had. I'm going to have to, I'm actually going to get on a phone. I'm going to get on a phone and I'm going to use my phone skills. I'm going to use my Jew lawyerings. I'm going to let these motherfuckers have it. Here's the move that they pulled. So I had to get myself a Corona test at some point or another. And there's this place in town, and they say that they got instant tests. Now, here's the thing. If you've never gotten a corona test, you will get corona. You show up to a small office of other people who think they might have corona, 
Uh, you stand in rooms, there's zero ventilation, you take off masks, they shove things into your nose. If you want to get corona, go find small doctor offices that clearly have not, they're not doing it outdoors, which would be simple enough. They haven't put in, uh, they don't seem to be cleaning the rooms all that much. I mean, you want a good place to go get yourself some corona before you're going to some family thing that they wanted you to get tested for. And, you know, go get yourself tested. You can go back into the archives. We've talked about these experiences before. All right, there are plenty of places that offer free corona testing. Obviously, it's not free. The government seemed to work out some scam that your insurance company would have to cover it, and so they do have to cover it, right? So I go to this worst place. You can go to CVS, and at least it's in your car, and you're breathing some fresh air and mostly other people's virus particles. But this particular office, small, small terrible office. Okay, you go in there. Uh, you know, you got to hand them the insurance card. They take your insurance card. You go into a room. You sit in there for 15 minutes. You breathe in other people's corona. Finally, a nurse comes in. They swab your nose. They leave. And these people are so lazy, they don't even send you a negative result. They're just like, listen, if you're positive, we'll give you a call. If not, you hear nothing from us, you're fine, which is kind of a nerve-wracking way to go about it because you're like, maybe they just forgot to call me. Like, then you're just not sure. But anyways, I mean, it's an institution that exists so that people can spread coronavirus. Usually, they like to spread the coronavirus within the building, right? But sometimes they prefer to send you out there and just go, oh, look, we forgot to call you and tell you. Okay, so here's what they do, right? So I come in. They, they publish online that they're doing the free corona testing. It's going through your insurance. But then three weeks later, you get a letter in the mail that there's a new patient fee. Because when they took your insurance card, right, and they didn't do anything other than everywhere else that you go to get a corona test, apparently there's a $250 fee for becoming a... I'm not a patient of this place. I showed up same as every other fucking place that swabbed my nose and told me whether or not I didn't have corona. But all of a sudden, they've got a new patient fee. And how... Uh, do you guys even read your mail? Who checks these fucking things? Because by the time it gets processed by the insurance, you get the thing and then they... And like, do these people just want us to have bad credit scores? Like, they know that we're not going to pay them when they create these bullshit fucking medical things that are never going to happen. And then what they give it to some... Uh, some collection agency for what, 10 cents on the dollar. So for, they make up some fee that of course, like, I, I guess if you're smart enough to call them, I bet they backtrack in a second. I'm sure if I get on the phone with them within two seconds, they go, oh yeah, yeah, that was a mistake. Right? So either probably 90% of like 90% of people don't bother to call 10% of people do call and then they just throw it out. Right. And then if you don't bother to call most of those people, I'm sure are not actually paying that bill. I'm sure they don't get a bill three months later that says, Oh, you do 250. And they're just like, everyone's like me. Well, then you can go fuck yourself. And then what? It gets handed to some collection agency that ruins your credit score that even if the docs medical were to get that money, it would be 10 cents on the dollar at best. They probably don't even get that. So it's like, well, what do these businesses exist for? Just to ruin your credit score? Is that is that 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 does the the entire process? I hate the medical system, and I've already said this before, but I'm convinced because I've been in these offices where they hear that you don't have insurance, and then they give you a new price, which is just the price of what the copay would be. Uh, the, the whole thing. I hate everything medical and medical insurance, except for uh, Doctor Krim. Yeah, shout out to Doctor Krim. He's cool, but everyone else in the entire industry can you know go online and run pants stores. I don't know what that means. Did I plug Sheath yet? Because you want to talk about a good website that's going to send you exactly what you're looking for. It's Sheath Underwear. I don't know if you've stocked up yet for Christmas, but you know, get your sheath in a sheath hole. Uh, RYM, you use promo code RYM, you get 20% off and uh, Sheath's legit. I'm lucky. I'm all stocked up. I got a full sheath wardrobe. I don't have to worry about uh, my balls falling through the hole that's in the bottom of my pants because they can't be replaced. 
Uh, and even if it were to happen, you know, sometimes I'm on that, yo, Delta, and so it doesn't even bother me. That's how you, you know what, I'm going to start doing ads that way. Just, just group them all together, and these are uh, just, you know, buy some tickets. You go to robbingthefire.com slash shows, and even if you got to travel to come out to one of these live events, you should do that. And then also, you guys are all smoking weed. Go get it from yodelta.com. Those vape pens are legit. And you all, you know, mostly need underwear. I'm sure some of you just go commando and put shit on your pants. I get it. I get that, That you know, I, I'm not judging. We're libertarians here. Everyone's got to live their own life. All right. Let's talk about the next topic, uh, which is... 55 years. They need 55 years to give us the rest of the information about this. Uh, I mean, already the what, what they got pre-trial data, more people are dying. Then we find out that they lied about the pre-trial data and that there was even more deaths than they claimed. There were six more deaths. I think it was mostly from, uh, from you know, people's hearts exploding and dicks falling off. That's not true. But you got more death. And now all of a sudden, apparently... They were able to get through all this information very quickly in order to get this to market, but they're going to need 55 years before they can release the information. So why? Wouldn't they want a second set of eyes on it? At least let us look it over. I mean, this information must be really good. I get that it was an emergency, and so you guys put all hands on deck, and then you got this thing out into the world, and then you said that you were going to need boosters, and you said that this thing was safe to kids. So... What, I mean, what problem would you guys have with making the information available? You guys need 55 years for it? All right, that's a weird one. Then you also got <laughs> Omnicron, something right out of a Terminator 80s action movie. That's the newest variant. Do I know anything about it? Not really. Steven hit me up with some information. Uh, hopefully, we'll have him on the show because it sounded like here, here was my summation of what I could understand from our super scientist, Steven. It's that... We know that when it comes to mutations, the original version of the vaccine, even to the extent that it works, it's not going to work as well with these uh, viruses that mutate. This thing has mutated past the Delta, where I think the current version of the vaccine really is not going to work on it. That's at least as much as I took away from, you know, he was telling me all these things about antibodies. He's got 1,200 as a number. He's got 1,400 as a number. He's got protein spikes. He's got the protein spikes working against you. We're just going to have him on the show. Uh, another thing I sent over his way, which was interesting to me, is that if you do the math on uh, kid deaths, more kids will probably die from the vaccine. Now, we're not talking about big numbers here because kids don't really die of corona. But in comparison, if you actually run the math, uh, I'll send you guys that article because that one was also a little bit over my head. Uh, I don't really have anything else. Hopefully, we'll have Steven on the show. We'll get another update going. Uh, and then here's the last thing I'll play. I want to play this video from uh, the defense attorney for Kyle Rittenhouse was on the news. He was talking with Mr. Cuomo from CNN. So I'm going to play this little clip and then we're going to get into my uh, segment with the Gavel Project. Here we go. MFR. And he believed Kyle didn't have the guts to do it. He was wrong and he paid with his life. Well, I don't know that it's guts. Uh, I think it's I, I think it's bad judgment. It was justified under the law. Uh, but I think it's hard. And that's why I asked the question. It's hard to believe that somebody chasing you uh, is going to beat you uh, to death. Uh, why he, else was he chasing him, Chris? Probably to, to get him and beat him up, hurt him. Uh, but again, my problem is with so in Chris's opinion, we should live in a society where people that are bigger than you should be allowed to kick the shit out of you. I mean, 
listen, they're not going to kill you. And at the end of the day, you're going to have your life. So it's better that bigger people than you can beat you. And, you know, even if there's permanent damage and even if you're there at the moment and you're risking severe lifelong damage, because, I mean, if you're getting kicked in the head, we don't really know what that concussion or problems could potentially have. But what you should do is we should live in a society where people that are bigger than you can kick the shit out of you. And then I guess theoretically, the cops would bust these people later, except that and all the stuff that was going on there, it doesn't seem like rioters and looters. Uh, it doesn't seem like prosecutors have been going after them in a big way. But according to these people on the left that are anti-gun, it would be better to live in a society where even if you had a gun, you should allow somebody to kick the shit out of you because most likely when they're kicking the shit out of you, they're not looking to kill you. And so at least that guy should continue to have his life. I mean, sure, he should go to jail or he should face some penalties for having kicked the shit out of you, but he shouldn't lose. No. That's the whole value of guns, right, is that it makes society more civil. That if some bigger dude goes, hey, I'm just going to start going outside and kicking the shit out of people, he might run into some four foot ten, you know, thin-armed kid who happens to have a gun on him. And if you're going to be an asshole and you're just going to start picking fights with people, then fuck you. That's the risk that you take is that you picked a fight with a dude who just happens to be living in a state where it's legal to holster a gun and he doesn't want to have the shit kicked out of him. There is like, I don't even like, that's the entire value to guns is that we're not going to live in a society where people that are bigger than you are just going to show up and start fucking like, we're not, we're not kids. You don't have to live a life where you get bullied. You don't need to live a life where random people are going to, you know, that's the society you want to live in where we just have bigger people kicking the shit out of smaller people. And then maybe the cops sort it out at a later juncture in time. It was bad judgment to have a gun on your side and not just let somebody kick the shit out of you. I mean, because you'll most likely survive getting the shit kicked out of you. And even though there's other people that might see that this guy's kicking the shit out of you and then you're incapacitated and then everyone's stopping you out, it's bad judgment to have a gun on your side and have somebody violently attack you and then use that gun to prevent the person from kicking the shit out of you. There you go. This is the, uh, the, 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 the smartest people on the most well-paid networks giving you their take on the situation. So there you have it. Let's get into it with the uh, Gavel Project. Once again, go to RobbieTheFire.com. I uh, got a whole bunch of tour dates running this end-of-year thing, trying to get it together to film it in New Hampshire, put it up online, and then uh, you know go into next year with absolutely no material whatsoever and have to figure it out. Uh, and then other than that, you know, Sheath, they're pretty cool. You guys should go get yourself some underwear. I recommend it. Yo, Delta, yo, Kratom. Let's get into the second half of the show. Now we've got an actual expert coming back on the show uh, we had him on a couple weeks ago. He's taken on the good fight of trying to get after the government, make people some money who've been thrown out of their jobs. I might not have that accurate. I'm not actually a lawyer. You can go to thegavelproject.com, get some uh, advice or interact with him, see what he's up to. But I'd like to re- welcome to the podcast, Ryan from the Gavel Project, who off of the bat is going to answer some of my written house questions that I screamed uh, drunkenly from the stage last week in Chicago. So welcome back uh, to the to the show, Ryan. Thanks, Robbie. I'm, I'm happy to be here. And um, yeah, it was, uh, it's been quite the few weeks for me. My, my wife and I have been, been doing things. I've actually just got back from San Diego. I was out there hanging out with some, uh, some, some American heroes, some first responders that are being threatened right now. And uh, they're, they're going to be fighting back. So looking forward to that. If you want to support their cause, it, you can go to uh, sdfirefightersforfreedom.com. That's the San Diego Firefighters for Freedom. Uh, you can just look, at, look them up online. Uh, but you have to go to that chapter to donate. So they are going to be uh, getting some money together. But I do want to get back to, to what you guys were talking about last week with the, the Kyle Rittenhouse case there, Robbie. So 
let's uh, let's start with that. You um you mentioned actually two podcasts ago, so not the live podcast, but two podcasts ago, you said there was a difference between needing to to change the law and enforcing the law as it is on the books, right? And so I, I want to come back to to this this point here, because I think it's actually a very important point that people need to understand, because this is actually the fundamental point of due process, meaning that you cannot charge people for what are called ex post facto laws. So laws that, that are, that arise after the fact, you can't charge people for laws that are not written in the books. And so what we have here is, is something called the principle of legality. It's, it's talked about a lot uh, in, in those terms. And what we, we have really, when it comes to Kyle, is just an unfortunate kid who really, despite whatever his intention was that night, um, got caught up in a huge mistake and, and shouldn't have been there, um, should have had, had people in his lives, adults in his lives advising him and people he could have gone to, to, to talk about this. And, and really, the issue comes down to the question of, of where are the adults that allowed the situation to get that bad in the first place? that would cause a child or someone like Kyle to want to go and in, in, in fight back or, or do anything. What I'm not saying he went there to fight. I'm saying to, to go in and try to, to take steps that other people should be doing because it's their job to do, right? And the answer is it's because people are making political decisions that are having real life consequences for people and harming them, not only, uh, financially, but their, their, their physical well-being as well. I mean, that's the case of these individuals who were shot in this, in this instance and the individuals who have been hurt elsewhere, you know, the videos of people being kicked in the head on the ground and, and such. It's, it's dangerous, but it's time to fight back. So this all comes down to, to prosecutorial, prosecutorial overreach. And so, Robbie, I want to talk to, to you a, a bit about that. You were uh, asking a little bit about, you know, wh why is it that we have a situation where lawlessness is just sort of rampant in these major cities? And, and the answer is, is pretty simple. It's because we have a lot of prosecutors that are refusing to charge the crimes on the books. Okay. They have the prosecutors, people don't seem to realize are the most powerful people in the American legal system, or pro probably the whole country, actually. They have very little oversight um, to the extent that they have oversight. It, it belongs to, to the judicial system, the judiciary, and the judiciary has abdicated its authority to the state bar institutes to basically hold them accountable for, you know, professional reasons. Most of the time that doesn't happen because prosecutors are the ones being asked by the state bar institutes to go after their friends, which they just won't do. So it's, it's a cyclical issue. Um, and it, it all starts with the Supreme Court. Of the United States. Now, I want to want to talk about that for a bit, Robbie. So, they have been chipping away at the the constitutional I rights. Guess, of uh, before we get into that, can I ask you a question on the? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, <clears throat> essentially, if you have laws on the book that don't have equal enforcement, you can argue that in a way that's lawlessness. So, by example, <laughs> right? Like when you have uh, <clears throat> when you have like someone who was hanging out with Donald Trump getting prosecuted for a law that no one's ever been prosecuted for and going to jail, then mm -hmm. it's like the it's like Chinese corruption. Everyone's corrupt, right? So when yeah. the system turns around against you, all of a sudden they could go, oh, this guy's corrupt. That, that, that is the corruption is when they get to go, oh, well, what this guy's doing, we're going to put him in jail for it. But then you let everyone else go about being corrupt, right? So like unequal Correct. enforcement of the law, like because then you can put anything on the books. You can put a law on the books that you're not allowed to 
use your internet between 9 and 10 p.m., right? And then all of a sudden, everyone in the entire country is using their internet between 9 and 10 p.m. because that's stupid. But then since mm-hmm. the cops don't like you, all of a sudden, you're going to jail for using your internet between 9 and 10 p.m. And you're like, well, wait a second. I didn't even... I didn't realize that that was a real rule because no one was keeping it. And they're like, nope, it's on the books and you're going to jail for it. It's like that's a form of lawlessness because all of a sudden that's a way of taking people out of the system that you don't want to be in the system. Right. It's not like an actual. Okay, fine. I think concept explained. Uh, When it comes to these prosecutors, so let's say is a theoretical. Right. They just choose that there's some crimes that they're just not going to prosecute. <clears throat> and let's say that it's uh, during a riot, people are being violent and the, or they're destroying cars, whatever it is, they're not going to prosecute them. Does can there be a criminal liability? Let's go. Let's take a very extreme example. Let's say a guy repeatedly women are coming in claiming that some dude raped him. And for whatever reason, they decide not to bring up the case. And then, you know another rape happens or he goes on a string of rapes and then they finally, you know, bring the guy in, they prosecute him. And then they go, well, why the fuck was this guy still out on the street? It's very mm-hmm. clear that there was evidence of earlier rapes it is, or if it, let's go with murder. If the same thing happened with murder, um, can prosecutors be found accountable for essentially not bringing charges when it was like very obvious that they had a case or very obvious that someone had committed a crime? Like, is there any, uh, um, liability of prosecutors for basically overlooking what very, like yeah. un, in very simple terms was someone acting like a criminal. Unfortunately, no. And, That's I mean, wild. There, it's, it's in, it's in certain contexts that you can have civil liability arise for prosecutors and, and, and the, the Supreme court actually, it, the reason I was talking about them is because they are the ones who actually walked this standard back to the point where the government basically just gets to do whatever it wants, um, whenever it wants. And so, so that, that theoretical, just to go with this, it's like, if my business straight up arson, I own a business, in one of these towns yeah. and it gets burnt down. I hire a private investigator. We find exactly who the guy who did it. Private investor is really good. And he actually finds out that this guy had been to four other rallies had done it and they could have easily have tracked him down. We know that they can track people down because of what happened with January 6th. They can very easily go yeah. on the internet start looking at license plates, figuring out the individuals. We can see very clearly that if they want to figure out who committed crimes and prosecute them for them, they can find those individuals. They are choosing not to do it in all these other cases. But just to go back to this, so my business get bur- gets burnt down mm-hmm. and I can prove that the government could have very easily have taken this guy off the streets because he had previously burnt down buildings and decided not to. So you're saying there's, there's no way of me to be basically bring a suit against the government for that. Correct. There's no way for you as an individual to bring a civil lawsuit against the government to recover damages for their failure to prosecute criminals um, is is the way I would phrase it. So along those lines, I know nothing about this case. I I really only saw the headline. I'm behind on my news reading. I'm getting very fat and lazy. Honestly, I've been working on my end of year thing on on the days I'm not working on that. I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) I've been going a little hog wild. Um, I did see a case earlier this week. I think the, the, the number was either 140 million or 160 million that the FBI had to pay to the victims of one of the school shootings because they were found to be negligent for not following up on leads. Do you know anything about that case? Because that no, I'm sorry, be... I haven't been, been following that one. Fair enough. All right. So you were saying the Supreme Court has allowed the prosecutors to get away with this. Yeah, and, and they've done that by by creating extremely favorable case law towards the government. So basically 
they, they've created a bunch of, of case law that allows the government to make a bunch of mistakes and still prosecute people to the full extent of the law without, you know, any sort of recourse for the individual. Or they allow the government basically to do whatever they want without any recourse for the individuals who are harmed by the, those choices. Because the government is, is um, they have what's called sovereign immunity. You can't sue the government unless the government gives you, grants you authority to sue them. And so they, they do so, you know, the, the federal government in a few ways. Uh, they have the, the Federal uh, Tort Recovery Act, I believe. That, and then they also have uh, a few other mechanisms that you can bring uh, lawsuits under for constitutional uh, issues. The, the case is called Bivens. It's called a, a Bivens case. And they, they allow lawsuits for certain first amendment or certain, excuse me, certain constitutional violations or civil liberty violations from the government. So like Fourth Amendment if they break into your home without a warrant and they like destroy your house, you can recover damages for that from the federal government. Um, if they uh, torture you and like cut off your, your fingers, like you can recover damages because that violates your eighth amendment rights. Right. So uh, for, for those types of cases, there is a recovery, but it's not always the case. The Bivens doesn't extend right now currently to, to first amendment free speech issues. So even if, if you were to like, let's say last week you asked the question, um, can you recover as an individual having taken a COVID you know, vaccine in response to the OSHA announcement from, from President Biden? Unfortunately, um, the only people you can really recover from are, are your employers, assuming your employer had some sort of mandate in place, because you can't sue the government unless they grant you authority to do so. It just hasn't been granted here. Um, and, and, you know, I can't think how do of you, uh, How do you sue an employer, though? And this might be circular to... Uh, the last time that you were on, if mm -hmm. the, if your employer was working off of a mandate, how do you sue your employer for basically going like, even if like, let's go with an extreme, just cause the extremes mm -hmm. kind of show the principles the best. Let's say we went full Nazi Germany and Biden passes a law saying, if you got a Jew at your company, you got to fire that Jew, right? Or you gotta, mm -hmm. you gotta report that Jew to the authorities. So the business is you know, cost prohibitive to keep people on because they happen to right. have for certain status. Yeah. Fine. So then every single corporation, they go, Hey, listen, it's not that I hate Jews. It's that Biden does laws are on the books. I got to get rid of you. That then gets overturned a month later. And then Jews, they're good lawyers. They come back and they go, I'm going to fucking sue somebody for this. So they go, well, I can't sue the government. <coughs> Excuse me. I think I got Corona again. They go, I'm, I'm not going to sue yeah, the government. But yeah, um, I'll be the one case study of the guy who got it twice. Um, <laughs> so they go, I can't sue the government, right? But I'm going to sue my employer. I would think, doesn't the employer, even though what they did was wrong, don't they have some sort of immunity on the basis that they were working off of a government order? Like, how do you hold them accountable if they're they're not making their own decision just to tell employees something? They're actually going with yeah, a- they're, fo they're following what's been- promulgated by the Biden administration. And, and I think that's right. actually why the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals acted so quickly in response to that. I mean, what they did was unprecedented. T the, when you challenge an OSHA order, typically it goes through this, this um, uh, they call it a lottery process where they basically draw a, a name or a court from the, the different court circuit courts around the country, including the DC Court of Appeals. And they, um, you know, they issued an order of a, basically an injunctive relief before uh, that process even played out, which is, is very interesting. I don't think it's ever happened before, as far as I know. What is that? Uh, so, I'm, not, I'm not trying to follow. What does that mean that they had an injunctive relief before it played out? 
Yeah, so, so in law, there are um, a couple different types of relief you, you can seek. So there, there is uh, equitable relief, which basically means that you are seeking the court in equity to do something, meaning to tell someone to do something as opposed to giving you monetary relief, which is for, for damages for monetary harm, right? So um, it, we're talking about injunction. A preliminary injunction means an order from the court to basically stop a government you know, uh, law from taking effect uh, immediately. So it says that this law, uh, it's a high, higher bar than it is to even have um, to, to win in court because you have to show right now like that it's, it's extremely likely that you're that you are the one that is going to succeed on the merits in, in this case because the the argument you know that the government is making is essentially one not going up to win and two it, it's posing a significant threat or some sort of harm to the individuals you know that that it affects and that's why here when it happened so quickly um, it, it was a bit shocking to me at least because they hadn't gone through the typical procedure of even selecting which court was going to decide the case yet. This happened before that. I mean, this was very quick. So, um, and then they, again, a few days later issued a second opinion, um, you know, reinforcing the stay. So that's, uh, it, it's, it's how, strong. It's very suggestive. How, of, all right. So I, I, case. I don't know how the law works in any capacity when Biden mm -hmm. went ahead and he did that. It seemed, uh, it, 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 something seeming immoral to me is different than it being legal or illegal as we kind of pointed out from the uh written house right so sure. biden coming along and saying hey we're gonna impose a mandate on uh corporations that like to me it's almost it's it's seemingly not even that much different than making laws on corporations that they have to either get your documents or you know impose taxes on you uh, in other words, it's just a new regulation that they're it's good management. Like they can't be everywhere, everywhere. It, they can't be everywhere all the time. So they micromanage mm -hmm. and they go to basically, you know, your boss and say, hey, listen, you're going to you're working for me here. You already kind of have control over these individuals. So you're going to have to do the following. Right. So mm -hmm. <laughs> how flagrant was what Biden did that it basically, like you said, almost got an unprecedented review and what was it a stay of execution is that the proper language it, it was it was injunctive relief i don't know exactly okay. what the, the correct language the court would have used in, in this particular case i'm not a I, I you know before starting this venture this is all new to me i was doing workers compensation which is actually its own court system apart from you know traditional state courts in arizona right. and i was also doing state court law as well but federal law it, it, the language is a bit different i'm getting used to it again so um but I do just want to say that basically what, what SCOTUS did is there was a case called Imbler v. v. Pacman, and this was in, in the, the late uh, 60s or early 70s that the, the, the Supreme Court was hearing. And basically what they did is they granted prosecutors what's called absolute immunity for, from civil liability for any civil rights violation. So if, if you, your rights are violated as, as like, let's say, a criminal defendant, because the, the, the prosecutor in their um, prosecutorial role, that meaning like things they do as a traditional prosecutor. So in court, let's say they withhold evidence that that tends to show that you're innocent. OK, OK, you can't sue the prosecutor for that. They have absolute immunity. So if they, they have evidence that proves that you are innocent and they withhold that from the jury and you get convicted and spend your life in, in, in jail for 25 years, only later to be exonerated. You can't sue the prosecutor. That's crazy. 
Yeah, it's absolute immunity for that. So all of these, these actions that, that are within the, the prosecutorial role, um, things like uh, you re really most due process violations are, are, are protected by absolute uh, immunity. And so this actually means that they are only subject to professional so, discipline. Can I ask on that? Okay, so let's mm -hmm. say you've got a I'm, I'm in court murder trial, right? And there was a video camera in the room that clearly shows that somebody else walked in and killed, killed the person, you know, that's dead, right? Prosecutors, or let's say <coughs> cops are on the scene. First people there, they're friends with the DA. They take that videotape out. They hand it to the prosecutors. Defense has questions. Hey, there was a system. Nobody says anything. Nobody, they almost plead the fifth. They say nothing about the tape. 10 years later, we find out that the prosecution team had that tape the entire time. So you're telling me that if they bury evidence like that, they're just, they're just, free and clear they're allowed to do yeah that. so there's there's this gentleman and um that the innocence project helped out in in texas i believe his name is is michael morton i may be getting this wrong but uh someone will, will look it up and correct me on, on twitter or something i'm sure um essentially he was uh, a father um and a husband he had a had a, had a baby and he was actually out to, to dinner with his wife and his son in august celebrating his birthday it was back in the 1980s i believe and uh he went home with his wife. They went to bed. Uh, he and his wife were, I guess, had, had a dispute. They didn't have, let's say intimate relations that night. So he woke up in the morning and he, he left a note on the, on the window or, or excuse me, the mirror of the bathroom. And the note said something along the lines of, of you know, I'm sad that you wouldn't have sex with me on my birthday. Um, I was really looking forward to it. Blase, blase. I love you. Um, he leaves for work, uh, uh, sometime afterward, this is around 5.00 AM. I think, uh, some person shows up at the house and, and murders his wife in bed and, um, you know, stabs her multiple times. It's a sex crime. It's disgusting. Uh, the prosecutor in that case actually had a statement, um, from the, the mother of the, the, the woman who was murdered, uh, because the son was actually home at the time. This was a very small child, I think uh, under five years old or something like that. Very, very small. Uh, had, had actually witnessed the murder and had told his grandmother that he saw a monster killing his mother. Um, and that statement to, to the grandmother was actually suppressed by the police. One, they also found a, a, a green bandana with a, another man's um, DNA on it at, at near the crime scene. Basically there was this construction scene near the home that uh, this van had been parking at. And there was evidence of this as well. Neighbors had testified to this, to the police explaining this van had been basically casing this construction site for the last couple of days before the murder and um, was actually seen, I, I believe the day of, and they found a, a bandana um, near this van that actually ended up due to the innocent innocence projects uh, research, exonerating the, the man, Michael, uh, after 25 years in prison, all of this evidence that I, I just explained to you was hidden. Basically, the, pro the prosecutor in that case, who, who actually later went on to become a judge in Texas and sat on the bench for something like 25 years while this guy rotted in jail, um, was, you know, unable to, to go after this guy and, and, and find him liable for, 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 you know, civil liability for taking 25 years of his life away. You know, the guy actually ended up getting, I believe, disbarred. Um, in, in Texas, obviously lost his, his seat on the bench. Uh, but in total, he spent um, five days in, in jail. And I actually wrote a paper about prosecutorial misconduct in, in law school. And, and uh, comparatively, 
I, I did the analysis for the amount of days that, that Michael spent in jail. It was like one twenty eighth of 1% of the amount of time comparatively. It's like, that's not justice. And you're telling me that this, this guy who after, you know, 25 years is proven innocent and his son actually had, you know, been struggling his whole life too with his dad, you know, being, how do I get my dad out of jail? You know, I still have this kind of fuzzy memory of, of my dad not being the one who did this. And it, apparently it was this guy, actually the guy, I think to, to make the story even more strange, he had actually committed a very similar crime. Uh, it found out after the fact in another area in Texas this guy was a, you know, committed, he, he was a felon. They didn't look into him because they just thought they had the right guy. And unfortunately, um, you know, this is just one of the, the instances that, that someone was found to have had uh, exculpatory evidence, you know, ha having been hidden is hard to find because, you know, it, it wasn't presented at trial. It was intentionally hidden from the jury. So it's not always easy to find out that you've actually been put in jail, you know, maliciously. But it's because prosecutors are really they don't have any uh, accountability. They can just do whatever they want. It's crazy. Uh, <clears throat> all right. So. I forgot how we got into this because basically my question was about the prosecutors in the Rittenhouse trial and why they even took took on the case. Um, what were some of the? Reason. Yeah, were were there any other? Uh, I, I guess uh, moments or things from the Rittenhouse trial that I was talking about that you wanted to actually give us legal expertise on. Yeah, let me look at my notes here. I actually took notes on your, your uh, not this podcast, the, the one in uh, Chicago, yeah. but the one before that. It's evidence that people pay too much attention to whatever the fuck I'm spewing about. Bro, you were talking to me. Like, how am I not supposed to pay attention? You're like, oh, that lawyer. I was like, oh, I got to take notes now. <laughs> well, while you're looking at that, I do have a question, which is uh, I saw, and I, I once again, working off the headline here, uh, Biden has tried to go back to court to reimpose his mandate under the basis okay. of it being an emergency. Now, what's humorous yeah. about that to me is that laws and authority should not change based off of emergencies. It's like governments created this new thing, which I, I almost goes back to like maybe the emergency war powers. Like it, and it's almost like a flaw in government where we were smart enough to go. Government shouldn't have some powers. And then someone came up with the concept, well, an emergency, it should be different. And then mm. they keep inventing emergencies and messing it up. Like, I mean, even the like, so, yeah. but so just conceptually, like even in an emergency situation, the rules really shouldn't change. If the rules work and they're good rules, then we shouldn't go, well, you know what I mean? It, it shouldn't change in the, in, in cases of emergency. Yeah. And so what's interesting, Rob, what you're saying is basically you're wondering why, and it's a very valid point. Um, the constitution seems to have been superseded in so many instances by emergency powers. Right. Um, and, and I, I think that a, a lot of that has to do with, with the fact that people, you know, obviously were very scared of, of COVID and having uh, to, to deal with it at the outset, but now it's like, we're no longer buying this, this, this game. Like this is no longer something that we, we can actually buy into and, and your constitutional rights don't get suspended just because the government says that there's an emergency. They actually have to establish that this is true. Like they need to prove to, to the public based on uh, evidence that, that they present to us that is trustworthy, that they can prove is trustworthy. Well, here's, here's what's crazy about what you're saying is that mm -hmm. it's not about the laws or interpretation of the laws. It's almost about authority against public perception. Exactly. So in other words, it, it like the Supreme Court, it, I, a court, it, 
within this lens, the Supreme Court is not sitting there going, well, I got a document with rules. And so I got to check against these rules to see if what you're doing is okay. Instead, what they're doing is, well, they're gauging public perception to go, hey, are we allow, can we allow you to be this authoritarian and the people will accept it because they're so frightful of something else? So like- well, I- I think that we've gotten here based on a long downward spiral of bad precedents being set by the Supreme Court and you know, doing things like granting prosecutors absolute immunity. That wasn't always the case. You actually used to be able to hold people accountable that, that you know, uh, if there was a, a Brady violation that they violated your civil rights and deprived you of due process, you could sue them civilly for damages. Um, and, and there are instances, you know, where you still can. It, it's not absolute immunity that there are administrative acts, Rob, that you actually can sue prosecutors for that are outside of the traditional prosecutorial rules. So if they're doing things like making investigative decisions, um, like approving to, to hypnotize someone for, without a basis of doing so, for, for example, that would be uh, you, you could fi- file a lawsuit for that. That's actually happened before. Uh, fabricating evidence during the investigative period. That's something you could sue them for. Um, but, you know, that doesn't really make a lot of sense because you can hold also, sorry, I, I skipped ahead, destroying evidence as well in the investigative period. You, you can't, you can hold them accountable for, but then for some reason you can't sue them if they just withhold evidence at trial, right? Like it doesn't, there's just this arbitrary distinction being made in, in the case law by the Supreme Court. And, and what happens to, to be the case, I think, is that you have a court that is trying to do whatever is convenient in the moment to give small wins to the state because the court is made up entirely of state lawyers right now. I mean, the last time a criminal defense attorney was on the Supreme Court was, was 1992 with, with Thurgood Marshall. Okay, it's been almost three decades since anyone with any criminal defense experience has sat on that court. Oh, that's interesting. So what you're saying is, the same as we kind of look at the revolving door of, hey, everyone working at the Fed and Treasury came from Wall Street, so clearly they're going to represent Wall Street's interest. Or mm-hmm. we look at people that are on the defense panel and we go, hey, they went from they came from these defense contractors. Clearly, there's a conflict of interest. We don't really think of internal government agencies in the same way. But what you're pointing out is that all of these people are kind of coming out of the uh, – I, I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily directly the prosecutionary farm camp. But it's definitely just kind of like, like you said, no one's playing the defense side. No one's been representing clients. Nobody's a lawyer in that capacity. No citizens. Yeah. So, yeah. So their scope is clearly going to be somewhat limited to uh, kind of playing for their team, which is not necessarily uh, hasn't really been representing the interests of the general public. Like there's no way that their Correct. mindset of typically like, we all have cognitive bias. We all kind of uh, stand behind ourselves yes. in line. We try and justify our earlier actions and we use a lot of our intellect to justify the, like what we're doing. The smarter you are, sometimes the more of that you're doing and the more well-reasoned your arguments can be. The point being, if you've spent your whole life representing certain types of clients, which could either just be the perspective of government, you're going to be very bought into that model. You're not really going to be able to question that system Something I've never thought about here, but I think there's uh, definitely some accuracy to that claim that there is not diversity of thought amongst the Supreme Court because they're all kind of coming out of a similar system. Yeah, well, you, you mentioned in-group bias. And that, that's exactly correct. And, and, and that's it's harder for someone who is part of a group, and this is what in-group bias shows, to recognize fault of other group members because they 
derive their own self-identity from the group and their self-esteem from that group as well. So it's just harder to see things that people are doing wrong. And that's actually true. So you, you pretty much beautifully set up what I, I was going to, to tell you cool. is that since, and this is correct, since 1972, the number of prosecutors on the Supreme Court has increased threefold. Okay. Uh, during that same period, only Justice Marshall had any meaningful experience advocating for criminal defendants. Uh, it's been th nearly three decades since there's been a defense lawyer on the court, at least a criminal defense attorney. Uh, a 2019 Cato study of current federal judges showed that judges with prior experience as prosecutors outnumbered those who had previous experience as criminal defense attorneys four to one. And those with government experiences, we make that broader with, with just private practice experience and defense side, seven to one. So basically what you have is a, if you are an attorney and you want to become a judge or a Supreme Court justice, you need to become a prosecutor or you need to become a government attorney. And it's going to, if, if you, that is the case and you have only one type of lawyer going into these positions, then you're going to have a, a large number of favorable rulings Former towards group. that group, their former group, because you don't, you know, former cops don't, don't stop, you know, hating bad guys when they, they turn in their badge. It's like, they still have that, that same, you don't hate the, the, uh, I don't hate the Cardinals just because I moved to Virginia from Arizona, you know, like I still like that football or, team. When I, I, was just, I am more likely to hear of a sales guy doing something aggressive that someone else might be horrified by and just be like, <laughs> I wouldn't do that, but I respect that they were being salesy, right? Like yeah. that's almost my mentality because I work in sales. Yeah, I, 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 I'm very value oriented. I'm very value driven. I know all the tricks. And sometimes when people are willing to be aggressive, I like other people might look at that and go, that's pure theft where I would look at it with a more gray lens of, Oh, that guy had the balls to be aggressive and salesy. Good for him. Speaking to your concept that because I work in the field, I'll tell you when I thought I was going to work on wall street, which did not last very long, I would have defended Goldman Sachs left and right. Are you kidding me? I'd be like, these are just people that are trying to make money. There's something about whatever they're the system. Same as me, right? I'm making money here. They're making money yeah. here. We're all the same. They're just a little bit better at it. They figured something out. They got their thing. Uh, <laughs> I think people within systems are going to try and justify those systems. They're going to have the most favorable lens. They're not going to be the most objective thinkers. I've said that even on this, like Israel's not a topic I talk about a lot. It's not something I've even sat down and really cared to research. And it's something that I know that if I were to approach, I'm going to be biased about it. So it's really not something that I like. I, I don't feel like I, I, I actually don't want to sit down and just try and justify something like that's not really interesting to me. So it's really a topic I leave to other people. It, yeah. I, I like, I, I know I'll probably have a biased opinion on it. So it's just not really that interesting. Uh, but that it, what you're saying is that if we understand this about human beings, there's clearly going to be a, like basically an in-group bias for government and for uh, authoritarian laws based on the fact that this is the farm camp that all these people are coming from. It's interesting. Correct. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, you don't check your, your, your love for your team at the door when just because you get right. pointed to the bench. I mean, you're there and it's like, if you're hearing arguments, you're going to have some favor towards that side naturally, just because it's what you're, you're inclined to do. And, um, you know, it's unfortunate because the Supreme court in, in, in making these rulings, they actually basically just kicked the ball for all of these like prosecutorial issues that are not investigative in nature. They just kicked it over to, to the, the, um, 
the state bar disciplinary committees to, to hold these people accountable. And they just don't do it. They, they Aren't some of these people, wasn't Amy Comey Barrett the new, wasn't she a professor? Weren't some of these people she was a professor? Yeah. But it's pretty before, typical. <laughs> but so wouldn't, wouldn't professors fall out of not, I guess what you're describing, of people kind of coming from prosecutionary or kind of government roles? Well, I'm sorry with the question again. I kind of missed that. Okay. If I thought what you were saying is that everyone on the Supreme Court kind of came out of these government judge or prosecutionary like DA type positions, so they would have a very kind of pro-government bias. Mm-hmm. But I guess someone who's a professor wouldn't fall into that category, which I know. Well, I, mean, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what she did before her professorship. I actually haven't looked into Amy Coney Barrett's background at all. I, I okay. have, uh, fr- frankly, I may be wrong now. I don't know if she did any criminal defense experience. I, I wrote this in, in law school. But the, the, the point remains that you basically have had a, a huge number of um, government lawyers as compared right. to people who defend civil liberties of individuals I get it. against I get the it. government. And it, it, it all comes down to, I mean, I, I have some evidence here that the, what they're doing is just not working because the, I, there's a, there's this Center for Prosecutorial Integrity that I'm not sure if they're, they're still functioning or not as a nonprofit, but I was looking into them uh, a while ago and they had this 2013 white paper that took the, this data from nine different studies and analyzed the outcomes of professional disciplinary proceedings concerning prosecutorial misconduct in those proceedings, okay? And together, they, they looked for instances of where the prosecutor um, from both the, the state and in federal governments, they looked at, at prosecutors, excuse me, from state and federal governments between 1963 and 2013. And so of the 3,625 instances of misconduct they identified in the study, they revealed that public sanctions were imposed in only 63 cases. So that's less than 2% of the time. So even though you have recognized prosecutorial misconduct being, being shown in these cases, they're only being disciplined publicly 2% of the time. That's like, wh- why is that? It has everything to do with the way that these, these state bar agencies are set up and everything to do with the way that the government um, you know, is just being favored by these institutions and the judiciary and by the the state bar agencies they're just not enforcing the law man fucking no justice um all right so to change gears here um just one more question on the osh uh osha thing so biden just brought back his claim how quickly in your estimation does that just get dismissed Well, it's Thanksgiving week, which is partly <laughs> it makes it even kind of more 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 funny. It's like you guys you did this right before Thanksgiving just to, to ruin the, the 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 Thanksgiving dinners of all the lawyers involved. Thank thanks for that. Oh, because now they got to sit around. Yeah, okay. This is this is a vindictive move. That's all it says. They're like oh, they're trying funny. to yeah. In my mind, so I don't know how long it's going to take. I hope the judge is just immediately. Yeah, I mean like. Um, but they're going to have to have a hearing on, on the, and it sounds like they're going to on bonk. So, I mean, I haven't been had time to follow it as closely as I'd like to recently, but, um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what happens uh, in, in this case. And, uh, it's, it's good to know that the, the daily wire is involved. The Alliance defending freedom is involved. Those are great uh, organizations and they have a lot of resources. So pulling for them. Um, but my focus again is going to be on, on, on in individuals. So I just want to do a quick plug, Rob. 
if you're out there, you're listening to this and you want to uh, get some representation in, in the states of California, Arizona, or Virginia, uh, I am looking to, to find schools. So if you're a parent, you have children that are in masks still or are, are subject to COVID-19 vaccinations, please go to thegavelproject.com, go to the contact page. You can uh, use the inquiries email there. Just reach out to us. I'd be happy to talk to you about your case. I'm most likely going to be starting to, uh, to get things off the ground in January here with, with the lawsuits. So uh, that's sort of the timeline that we're looking at, but oh, I want yeah, to get talk after to them, people dude. now. Yeah, it's going to be fun to, to, to see what happens, but I need to get my, uh, my case selection committee in place. So it's all uh, a lot in the air. <laughs> all right. I like it. Now, there was another wild court case uh, that was in the news today, which is, yeah. I believe it was, <clears throat> man, my memory is failing me. It was either $25 million or $125 million, uh, damage damages against the organizers of the Charlottesville rally. Now what's wild about that. And it was for, I don't believe it was much, much of it was for property as much as it was for um, physical harm on people that were there. Okay. Now from what I remember of Charlottesville, I got to go back and do my homework. But from what I remember of Charlottesville uh, was that maybe 500 neo-Nazis got themselves a permit to go down there and have a rally over a statue that no one gives a shit about, right? A whole lot of other people showed up, was throwing urine at them. The cops didn't do a very good job of separating the groups. It turned into chaos. As to, firstly, I mean, you've already pointed out the cops seem to just get immunity. If anyone should be responsible for chaos on the ground, it should probably be the people whose job it is to keep order and didn't seem to orchestrate, you know, proper security that you know that the groups weren't protected but just to okay now as to how the organizers firstly so there's there's a couple leaps here that are interesting i don't think the organizers personally harmed anybody so now we're saying that the organizers are actually responsible for uh the events that took place and for the actions of the protesters which might even include if they had a uh permit to be somewhere in which case you know the cops are the ones that kind of have to facilitate you know, them being able to be there. So that's interesting for one. Uh, And then for two, it just seems like a very one-sided judgment as I don't believe they went down there. Like, not that I support their cause clearly, but it doesn't look like they went down there to be violent or provoke the violent violence. (laughs) So it, it seemed to me like, how the hell do they get nailed on that one? I mean, obviously for political reasons, it makes sense. And I understand why a jury would just go, Oh wait, these guys are Nazis. Go fuck them. Uh, Mm. But from a legal perspective, I I almost don't understand how they were able to pull that off. Yeah. I'm not sure of the the, the particulars of this case, but I I can say that, you know, that there are ways to to get people into groups for purposes of of lawsuits. So for instance, if there's some sort of conspiracy you can prove between the individuals, as far as, as what it is they're doing, engaging in some sort of criminal conduct or engaging in some sort of conspiracy to deprive someone of of their, their civil rights, you you can often group people in uh, based on, on, you know, the connections to the, the instances causing the harm or the, um, the mechanisms causing the damage. Like if you could figure out that they were involved in the planning of this event and it led to this and it was a you know, criminal event for some reason, you can tie that in. Then it's all part of, part of the game, unfortunately. Um, and can you theoretically you know, go after BLM for this? 
You could in the same way. Yeah. Theoretically you could sue them for the, in, in the same manner. Um, I would, I'm not sure who brought this lawsuit or how it was brought government. Uh, well, I could be your or, next moneymaker, dude. I don't know. Maybe we'll, we'll see that. That actually wouldn't be a, a bad idea because they have caused a lot of similar. Now there's precedent. Similar ways. There's precedent. Yeah. We just said that uh, organizers are responsible, responsible for uh, the damages. All right. Here's another business idea for you. I mentioned this at a, uh, I think I'm part of the problem recently. So absent of the federal government kind of going after people that partake, partake, partook in all of these uh, rallies and all the damages mm-hmm. that occurred, I would assume that most of these bills are really just falling on insurance companies. So for example, if I owned a car lot and it was destroyed by protesters, I'm assuming, I mean, it's a pain in the ass. And I'm sure that my business takes a hit because there's a juncture of time that I don't have inventory. I'm sure that there is a loss for the business owner. But -hmm. in terms of like actually paying out, I'm sure insurance companies are paying out. Like if a Louis Vuitton store gets wrecked right in the middle of Times Square or whatever, I'm sure they have some sort of good insurance coverage. And AIG is paying that out of pocket for those windows. Now, it could be that in the world of insurance, AIG, this, that, they're so tied in with the Dems and the deep state and all the other shit, they're not going after these people. It's like the same as the same reason that, uh, you know, <laughs> government's not going after these people. There's no political will for it. These insurance companies also, we're talking big money. They don't care about the broken window. They're more interested in making sure that their friends are there and that, you know, if there's another, uh, they can keep getting their bailouts or whatever other uh, good policies are coming their way. All right. Now, as a theoretical, let's just say that they're not all tied in. There isn't that deep state and the Mm -hmm. insurance companies had to pay out all this money. Could you potentially start a business as a private investigator or a lawyer slash private investigator? And you're going to work for the insurance companies to start, you know, going after individuals uh, basically for the, you know, for all the like, in other words, you're going to start suing. You're going to start tracking down the individuals and you're going to start suing them for the damages. And now most of these people probably don't have a ton of money. But yeah. there's going to be some collections there, and and it's high well, volume. That's, that's the thing is, is you you have to um, consider the, the cost benefit analysis of litigation in, in all of these instances. A lot of these right. people who, who are engaged in this activity, the, the vast majority of them are you know broke college dropouts and and you know Antifa members, and especially the ones that are causing this sort of stuff. Right. They're not the type of people who are ever going to, to be to make any money because they, you know, made a bunch of poor life decisions and ended up having, you know, joining this group or, or whatever that caused them to, to engage in rioting activity as opposed to being a, a functional adult in society. It's like we um, and it all comes down to, to like, again, the prosecutors are just literally abusing their discretion and who it is that they're charging. Right. And, and, it, and it's resulting in, in additional damage being done because you're emboldening people. And so one of the things that, that we could do, although you can't recover damages for a lot of these, you know, failure to charge decisions, things like that, but there are creative ways to perhaps start enforcing the law. And this is what I want to talk about next. So All right, this I is think interesting. I was talking, um, you know, to, to some police officers recently, and, and a lot of these guys are just good guys that want to do their jobs. They want to enforce the laws that are on the books. They want to keep order. They don't want to stand by and watch their cities burn. That's not what these guys are about. These guys are heroes. They put their lives on the line, most of these guys, every day to save strangers because they care about their communities. And so um, it's got to be frustrating as heck for these guys to be sitting around watching these prosecutors just letting these you know, morons out of jail all the time and, and not actually enforcing the law. 
Uh, and so one of the things you might be able to do is, is use, and I, I just came up with this over the weekend and I talked to one buddy who thinks it might be possible, but I, I'm going to go try it somewhere. I'll let you know how it goes. Uh, you, you basically are, file what's called a writ of mandamus, which is, is a government order from a judge to a government official to go do their job. And so if you have a bunch of rioters, and this is something I, I maybe want to go try next time this happens, I might want to go fly out somewhere and bring some lawyers or contracts with people and just start filing writs of mandamus every time the prosecutor comes in and try to drop charges. They're like, no, Interesting. The, this, the city wants you to, to charge these people, the people of the city. And, and so if you're, you're a business and you're out there and you're looking around, you're, you're trying to figure out you know, how it is that your business is going to stay functional if there are additional riots, uh, maybe this is a way we, we can get you some help. So uh, if, if this works out, I want to start hosting large scale uh, educational workshops for police officers across the country. And, and I'll go state by state based on the worst states to teach people how to file these as police officers to try and get the, the prosecutors to do their jobs. And I don't know if this is going to work. I just came up with it yesterday. It's kind of off the cuff. But you know what? I'm researching it right now for California because I don't want San Diego to turn into San Francisco. I was there. It's a beautiful place over the weekend. And like, it's kind of going that way. <laughs> like, let's, let's not let that happen. <laughs> All right. So let's dip into one last topic here. And it's uh, if it's too preemptive and it's not something that you're able to get into at this juncture in time, you can let me know and we can uh, call it here. Uh, but before the show, you and I, we were talking about how uh, yeah. it's pretty obvious that the reason I, uh, why, Certain individuals, particularly Fauci, have not been criticized by the medical community at large or, you know, your professors and your colleges. And people look most reasonable individuals. I uh, like there are a lot of intelligent people that they think, hey, I've got my job. Other people have their jobs. And we spend a lot of money on government and government has these health professionals that reach the height of their profession. And when a health professional comes out and says, here's my guidance, and then I don't hear a ton of other people that are health professionals that are like criticizing him. So I just mm -hmm. assume that that person must, must be right. And that that's not a dumb thought. Like it really isn't because you're thinking, Hey, like my dad, I'm a 55 year old lawyer. I've reached, you know, an expertise in my field. I know what it took me to get here in my field. Right. So I assume that if a guy it, it, like my friends that became doctors, if they're not criticizing this person, they must really know their medicine stuff. Right. So there's a lot of people that really understand this thing that I don't understand and they're not criticizing Fauci. It must be that what Fauci and the medical community at large are saying about coronavirus is true because the only person who I'm hearing say it's not true is my idiot kid who barely got through college and high school. So why would I, for one reason, assume idiot kid is more accurate than everything I'm hearing on the news and from these lawyer from these doctors that are my friends. Right. But yeah. you and I, we look at it and we go, well, firstly, there are a lot of other doctors. You're just not hearing from them and you're not seeing it. Also, I think your own doctor friends aren't really doing a deep dive because they work at hospitals and they're being given their marching orders. And, you know, they're making the same assumptions that their hospital is not evil and they've been told to do something. So they're going to do it. Uh, and there's just so much money in the system kind of coming downstream from uh you know, these government institutions like Fauci with his grants that, you know, some of the powers that be that should be criticizing him uh, aren't because they kind of can't afford to, which is criminal. It's criminal that, you know, it's possible that there's bad health policy coming from Fauci and people won't criticize him because it's going to affect their bottom line. 
Uh, so you had a little bit more uh, of a piece to this puzzle of in terms just of, you know, the, the scheme of government money and the way that, uh, uh, you know, colleges are operating and where their profit mm-hmm. margins are and whose interests they're really working, working in for. And so I'll hand it back to you uh, if this is something that you can get into, because I know it might yeah. affect some of your future projects. Yeah. So um, I'll just say that everything that I'm, I'm about to say is educational in, in purpose. Uh, I, a lot of people have been asking where the money trail is from COVID and uh, how the top 1% have been able to, to increase their wealth so, so drastically. And I think I found at least a corner of the rug for that. And it has to do with, with universities, um, public and private in the United States, and, and the incentive structures in those universities for the employees and the relationship these universities have with their revenue streams that are being controlled by, by big bankers. And so uh, essentially, let, let's just take a step back. And uh, I think it, it's best to start with, well, what is a, a public university? So a public university uh, is typically an agency of the state. So that means that people who work for public universities are are akin to someone who works for, let's say, the attorney general's office. And so pay at these institutions should should be relatively similar. And um, you shouldn't have a large group of self-interested people utilizing public funds for personal gain relative to their wealth. So the thing that's most criminal here has to do with at least what you're talking about, Rob, are, are, are the way universities are, are being funded. Um, one, by, by their, their pharmaceutical agreements, it's actually estimated right now that in the United States, over two thirds of uh, of university biomedical funding comes from pharmaceutical uh, or, or at least private entities funding that research. And a lot of times those funding agreements ha- have contracts like gag orders on them for, for, for uh, if you find something that the, that the uh, private donor doesn't find favorable to their interests, they can actually prevent you from publishing your findings. Uh, and when you have, have such a large portion of, of your funding contingent upon private you know, interest groups, such as pharmaceutical companies who are self-interested here in, in COVID, obviously, um, you are basically doing tryouts for funding every time you go on TV and talk about COVID-19. And so your, your financial interests are, are aligned, one, with keeping your job, and, and two, uh, the, the institution's interests are also aligned in the same way. Uh, the other, other part of the funding that goes to, to at least public universities for private, uh, for this biomedical research is, is from the FDA and from, from NIH. And so when all of, of these organizations are funding the same goals in these one institutions, and these institutions have, have financial interests as well, in continuing the, the pandemic. And we can talk about that, I think, next time, Rob. I'm not sure I can talk about that yet. Um, but it, it seems as if, though, there needs to be a closer look taken at universities. One, the way they are funded. Two, the finan- financial interests of the individuals making decisions, such as professor- professors, deans of certain medical schools, things like that, and whether or not they are actually acting in in a a free objective manner relative to how they are advising us, the public, 
on what we should be doing with COVID. Um, and, you know, it, there, there's so much here to talk about that it, it's hard to kind of dive right into to all of it, Rob. So maybe you could lead me through the conversation here a bit and we can, we can go step by step. And... Um, well, I, I think the, uh, the most interesting thing you've said is that you think you've got a piece into uh, specifically where the money's coming from. Like mm. that the 1% got wealthier here and it's off the back of COVID policy. Uh, now I thought a lot of that was just that uh, it wasn't look at it this way. It wasn't fair that some businesses got to continue and others didn't like, mm. I mean, it's kind it's kind of simple when most people can't show up to work and you're stuck at home, then more people are shopping on Amazon when yeah. I can't go to a live event. So more people are watching their entertainment off of Netflix. Like a lot of it is just that your internet providers and all of your internet industry that was already doing well, like obviously they got wealthier because you took away other options. It's like, yeah, I can't go to a restaurant. So seamless probably made more money also at the beginning of the epidemic. And this is something that like, even I haven't spoken about much because I got so wrapped up in, kind of the nonsense of, uh, you know, the bad coronavirus. I mean, all of the bad decisions being made in regard to faulty corona data, right? But whatever happens like that three or whatever is 1.7, the trillion dollar basically bank bailout that happened at the beginning of this that was so crazy that they gave everybody checks. So, I mean, you want to know part of why the rich got wealthier is because I don't know what investments they were in beforehand, but government stepped in to make sure that they remain profitable. Uh, but you seem to have uh, like a different piece of the puzzle here, which is uh, that there's a lot of, I guess, grant and medical research kind of going through uh, the universities, right? And it's going through uh, ways that can't even be tracked. But from there, I'd, I'd be curious to know the bigger picture of like, like I know BlackRock, I think they're playing with like $9 trillion. So I'd mm -hmm. be curious to know what the, or like versus the pension funds, how much money these endowments are, because I, I think Harvard's like 5 billion and they're the like, may, or maybe they're 55 billion and they're the biggest. 53.5 billion. Yeah. They're, right. they're so huge. But so if you added up all of the major colleges endowments, right. Do you even get to a trillion? I don't know. I don't know. You'd almost have to, I'm not sure you do yet, but you're, you're, I, I would imagine that you're getting there. I, I saw a 2018 study um, that was referenced in, in a Detroit free press article that said something like $563 billion in, in, in endowments nationally. Um, but a lot of these endowments, you know, during COVID, at least the second part of COVID actually had multi-billion dollar returns. And that's after a, a very down fiscal year between June 30th, 2019 and June 30th, 2020. Most of the, the endowments at these schools had, had relatively low returns, like three to, to four percent, which is sort of like a market, market average, I would imagine, for the stock market or whatever. Uh, I'm not an investment guy. But what I do know is that uh, at least in some of these schools, what appears to have happened is that after June 30th, 2020, they made changes, at least I know the University of Virginia did, to their investment portfolios, even though we don't know um, what changes specifically are made, by the way, because these, these investment portfolios that are filled with, with taxpayer dollars, um, it's, it's public property that, that, that are in, in, in these, these portfolios, at least for the public schools. Uh, we don't know how that money's invested. That's all secret. The, these 
and they have uh, on their boards of these, um, basically the way they, they set up these endowment funds is they set up these quote unquote nonprofit affiliate entities uh, that actually manage the endowments. And these nonprofit entities are actually, the, the board members of them are guys that belong to BlackRock and to Bain Capital and to all sorts of, of, of huge banking interests that have, you know, control, like you said, of trillions of dollars. And it makes sense, you know, for, for, on the one hand, because you have uh, people who obviously know what they're doing with investments. But if we don't know how they're managing those investments or where that money is going, what, who's to say they're not giving the money to their own firms and actually self-dealing? And I'm not saying that this is happening. I'm saying that the circumstances are very ripe for it. And I think that there should be investigations into it. Um, and, and what's interesting, man, you got a lot of really, legal work ahead of you, man. You got, this is you not my, my, this is not what I, I want to do. This is not, I'm not a, I'm not like a fraud guy. I just did some research and found this out by mistake. I'm not even really sure I'm, you know, how I would go about going after these people because what they have done may not even be illegal. I mean, it's right. not illegal to sit on the board of a charity and advise them on how to make more money. Um, what's, what's interesting though, is that what if you have, university administrators also sitting on the boards of these investment companies and you as an individual looking at the, the, the market with all of these bankers or, or sitting around and thinking, all right, well, how do we, you know, turn our investments around our, our endowment funds around after a poor three and a half percent year? Well, maybe if, if we, you know, change our investments to, to go towards COVID negative, let's say if the economy gets a little worse, but because of COVID, but certain products are going to do better. Let's invest in those. And then maybe if the public health experts all come out and, and start, you know, giving this message of panic to the public, we can actually cause those investments perhaps to go up. I mean, you have control over all of the public health experts in, in the country and they're all acting together. So if you've got, you know, billions of dollars or trillions of dollars invested and you have a relationship with the university that pays bonuses for undisclosed reasons to the president, to, to the people who control these, these endowment funds as well. Um, and the bonuses are hundreds of thousands of dollars, by the way, of taxpayer dollars. Uh, it's like, maybe we should look into to what's happening behind these closed doors with these endowment funds, um, because it seems like there's just way too much room for, for, for funny business to, to go on. And, and all the people who got bailed out, it seems like in 2008, when, because they were, you know, playing with a bunch of money um, and, and doing some shady stuff are, are now in control of a bunch of money that we as tax pay, taxpayers, you know, have a right to, and they're doing whatever they want with it without any oversight. All That's right. what it seems like. Fascinating stuff. My brain hurts. We've been thinking a lot. It's late at night. Why don't you plug once more where people can find you and uh, the type of people that would most benefit from going to your website yeah. and uh, hitting you up with, uh, with their information. Thanks Rob. So yeah, I am uh, Ryan. I'm the CEO and president of the gavel project. You can find us at thegavelproject.com. I'm on Twitter at Ryan underscore L underscore Heath. It's the same thing for my Instagram. Uh, and you can look up the, the gavel project on Instagram as well. But if you're out there, if you're a student at UVA or UCLA and you've been sent home, uh, disenrolled, I want to talk to you, please go to my website, go to the contact us page. If you are uh, a parent in, in the, the states of California, uh, Arizona or Virginia, and you have students who, who are subject to COVID-19 mandates, whether mask or vaccine, please reach out to me, go to my website, thegavelproject.com. I'd love to chat with you. Uh, anyone who has been 
you know, subject to particularly egregious COVID-19 vaccination policies from either uh, your state in California, Virginia, Arizona, or your employer in those states. Again, please, thegavelproject.com, and you can find my contact info there. Hell yeah, dude. Hey, man, it was an absolute pleasure. Uh, dude, thank let's you do it in person insights. sometime. Absolutely, man. You're out in California, right? No, I'm in Phoenix, but I'll, I'll, I'll be out in the East Coast uh, probably in January, so I'll, I'll pop up to New York. Nice. Well, hopefully 2022, I, I, dude, it, it's starting to look more viable than ever for me to pick a city, just put up a show and be able to pull it off. Uh, so thank you to all the fans out there that have been actually showing up for the live shows and buying tickets. And uh, I'm hoping in 2022 to, you know, I like to work. I wish I could just do it. I, I wish I could be away every day. That's not really viable right now, but yeah. I assume for next year, I, I will continue to be a single individual with no family or care or concerns with my life. I, and that I will probably book a different city every weekend. So, you know, Phoenix at some point. Come on out, man. I, I got to text my wife. She's uh she's out with the daughter driving around trying to stay awake. So time to put the girl in bed, man. All right. Hell yeah. Later, dude. All right. Later.